Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us and that you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. This is a reading from Matthew from the Common English Bible. You have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. We're about two years in now to the He Gets Us campaign. I, I, I don't know if you've, you know, of course you've seen the commercials everywhere. They're kind of ubiquitous. You see them and, and they're instantly recognizable, not just because of black and white photography, but, but especially that black background and white and yellow text. You, you can always spot them and they show up in the strangest places sometimes. Uh, last fall, I was watching a football game with my son. We went to Colts and it was the one game we watched all season long. It was late in the second half and, uh, and, and we were losing and it was third and 15 or something like that. And all of a sudden, all around the stadium, there appeared this black, te- black uh, background and white and yellow text. And it said, Jesus believed even on third and long, he gets us.com. And I thought, that's impressive. Even at the Colts stadium, he gets us. Although I did think it would have been better if, they, if it had been fourth and long. That would have been a little bit better, but he gets us. Anyway, so it wasn't a surprise to me when uh, last Sunday, watching the Super Bowl and the second commercial break, a He Gets Us commercial came on. And as soon as it started, I said, oh, this is going to be one of those He Gets Us commercials. And so we watched it and, and well, in case you missed it, in case you didn't watch the Super Bowl or if you skipped the commercials, which who does that? uh, Here was the commercial that showed last week in the Super Bowl. Don't ask me what you know is true. Don't have to tell you. I love your precious heart. I I was standing. You were there. Two worlds colliding. And they Pretty powerful, isn't it? I, I was, I mean, as soon as I, Jane and I watched it, I knew what it was when it came on, but still when it was over, I turned to her and I'm like, wow. And then my son who was sitting next to us said, 
meh, I like the third and long better, you know, so <laughs> teach our own taste. But I, I, to me, it's such a powerful example of, of what it would look like to love our neighbor. Like what makes it so powerful is that, is that the commercial juxtaposes people who in our society are often estranged from one another. Broken family relationships, people of different ethnicities, or maybe even different religions. You have a black young man and a white police officer. You have a pregnant teenager and an abortion protester, an oil worker and an environmentalist, and someone who seems to be transgender and a priest washing their feet. What a powerful expression of what it looks like to live out Jesus's ethic. The only quibble I have with it is towards the end, it says, he gets us.com slash love your neighbor. And I thought if they really wanted to get Jesus's ethic right, it wouldn't have said, love your neighbor wouldn't have been the tagline. It would have been love your enemy. Because in today's society, there are battle lines drawn everywhere. Don't you feel it? And we feel like we're constantly under attack or under threat. It's easy to feel threatened by anyone who belongs to a different group or anyone who, belong, you know, who holds a different belief or ideology from us. We, we just see enemies everywhere. We feel it. And, and so how do we take seriously this command of Jesus Christ when he says to us, Love your enemy. Love those on the other side of the battle line. How do we do it? Well, let me pause for just a moment. This, this teaching of Jesus, I want, I want you to understand the context. It takes place within what we call the Sermon on the Mount. In, in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7, it's the first collection of Jesus' saying. It's, and it's, to me, it's one of the best crystallizations of Jesus' thought and his ethics and the way he wants us to live. And so for the season of Lent, for the next five weeks, we're just going to spend our time in the Sermon on the Mount going through it slowly. And the daily devotionals that I send out every day from the church, they're, they're going to focus. We're going to kind of, we kind of move through the gospel of Matthew. We're going to come back and we're going to move slowly piece by piece through the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have not been getting the daily devotionals, I would encourage you, sign up for them. All you got to do is on your prayer card or, or on the check-in, just give us your email, say devotions, and we'll make sure that they come to you. Check your spam folder, make sure you're getting them. And just follow along as we read through this important collection of Jesus's teaching for us. And so just the context then. So Matthew chapter five begins with the Beatitudes, this pronouncement of blessing upon eight groups of people who are the least likely subjects for us to think of as being blessed. These were, you know, the poor in spirit, the meek, the lowly, the downtrodden, the, the, the persecuted, and Jesus pronounced blessing upon all of them. And then Jesus says, but blessed are you. And then he says, because you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. But then he tells them, if you're going to live as salt, and if you're going to live as light, if you're going to let your glory shine before others, then I tell you that your righteousness must surpass and must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now, who are the Pharisees? The Pharisees were people who had set aside their lives, devoted their lives 
to following the, every letter of the law. And so if you're a listener in those days, you think, how can my righteousness exceed? They're totally devoted to God's law, but th- this is the key. They were devoted to following every letter of the law. They followed the letter, but they often ignored the spirit. And so Jesus wants us to understand we, we don't become righteous by following the letter of the law, but by following the spirit, the spirit of love. And so then he follows up this command with six examples, six teachings that all follow the same format. You have heard it said, but I say unto you. And in the first example he gives, and it, you know, you have heard it said, and he says, some piece of the law. He says, but I say to you. In other words, he says, this is what the law requires. Don't murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not lie. But I say unto you, and then he says, this is, you know, this is what the law requires, but even more is what love requires. And the final one of these six teachings, the culmination of the fifth chapter is this, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you that you might become children of your father in heaven. This is the height of, God, of, of Christ teaching his ethic for us. Love your enemy. But how do you do that? Because it's not easy at all. I bet every single one of us can think of someone that we regard as an enemy Someone who, when we're in their presence, we feel, you know, we're on high alert. We're, we're, our, our walls are up. Someone who's hard to love. How do we love someone who is trying to attack us, harm us, bring us down? How do we love our enemy? Once you back up to the previous teaching, Jesus gives three examples of specifically how we are to respond to our enemy. The first one is this. He says, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. What's this teaching about, this example? Well, a strike on the cheek, it's a slap, right? Right? And what does a slap connote? It's not a punch. You're not trying to knock someone out. If you slap someone, you're not trying to knock them out. You're trying to put them down. A slap represents insult or offense. It's, it's, you know, we use this, you use it in the same way in our culture today. We say, well, ain't that a slap in the face? It's adding insult to injury. And Jesus made this even more poignant and profound. I said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, because in that day in culture, it was assumed that everyone was right-handed. The left hand was considered to be unclean. You didn't use the left hand for anything. You, everyone used the right hand. And so if I'm facing someone and I want to strike them on the right cheek, if I open hand, I strike them on the left cheek. So how do I hit them on the right cheek? The only way to do that is with a backhanded slap. And in that culture, same as in ours today, a backhanded slap is so much worse than an open-handed slap. According to law, it was penalized twice as, as, as grievously. It was the equivalent of spitting on someone. Author Corey Farr writes, a backhanded slap was more than violence. It was degrading someone. 
It was the kind of strike that you would only give to someone who is below you, beneath you, a slave or a servant who's putting someone down. And Jesus says, if someone treats you in this way, if someone treats you with the ultimate contempt, denies your humanity even, how are you to respond? Well, our response, you know, our gut instinct is to retaliate, right? To strike back, to defend ourselves at the least. But Jesus says, don't do that. Don't retaliate. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other to them also. The antithesis of this command of Jesus that comes right before the you have heard it said saying is, he says, you have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. This is the oldest known ethic and law in the history of man. We can date it all the way back to the code of Hammurabi and a Babylonian king who ruled 2250 BC before the time of Abraham. This teaching eye for eye, tooth for tooth has been around. And it made its way into the Old Testament as well in three separate places, Exodus chapter 21, Leviticus chapter 24, Deuteronomy chapter 19. And they all read basically the same way. I'm just gonna read Exodus 21 for you. But in this context, the law is talking about what happens if you're in a fight and the fight gets out of hand and someone gets injured. And it says, but if there is a serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. It's pretty extensive. And it sounds barbaric to us, right? Like, but, but you have to understand the context in which this law was spoken and given. It wasn't meant to be retaliatory as much as it was meant to limit the escalation of violence. So that, you know, one small insult didn't come something worse, didn't turn into a major injury, didn't turn into taking someone's life, didn't turn into a feudal conflict. It was, it was a way of establishing justice by balancing the scales. You can retaliate only to the extent, but not beyond the injury you have received. The problem is limited retaliation does not work. It didn't then and it doesn't now. Limited retaliation doesn't work because it doesn't end the conflict. Every single one of us, we like to have the last word, right? And so if someone strikes back, then we're gonna strike back too. And every single one of us is incredibly tribal. If someone attacks one of our people, our family or a friend or a group or a political party we identify with, we feel personally attacked ourselves. We're more aware of the offense that we receive than the offense we give. The offense we receive, you know, when we, the offense we give, we go, oh, well, that was just a harmless joke. That was just a stupid comment. But the offense we receive, oh, they made it personal. That was vicious. And so if we pay back, it just goes back and forth, back and forth and escalates and escalates and escalates. And the only way for the conflict to end is what Jesus teaches, is if we say we want it to end with us. That when someone strikes the right cheek, we turn to them the other and say, I'll take more if you got it. That's how the conflict ends. Now I wanna be really clear here. This teaching is not about 
accepting injustice without protest. It's not about enduring abuse without defending yourself. If there's anyone in our midst today, anyone listening online who's in an abusive situation, you probably know better than any of us what it means to love and pray for your enemy. But loving your enemy doesn't mean that you have to, you know, turning the other cheek doesn't mean that you put yourself continually in position to receive harm and abuse from another person. Turning the other cheek does require incredible courage. It does require incredible discipline. And here's what I want you to see. That when we turn our cheek to the other person, we actually nullify the insult that we just received. Because in that moment, we claim our dignity and autonomy that, that, hey, you can't put me down. We reveal our strength and our integrity of our character. We, we, we show them and the world who we are. Children of the heavenly father. If you want to love your enemy, Jesus says, you must bear insult without retaliation. That's hard enough, right? Like I could just quit preaching right there. That'd be the end of the sermon, except Jesus gave a few more examples. So you think that's harder? Just wait. The next example Jesus gives us is if anyone seeks to sue you and to take your coat, then give them your cloak as well. What's Jesus describing here? In first century Jewish culture, men typically wore two garments. The first was a shiton, which was a kind of a nightshirt-like undergarment. It, it was, you know, uh, and, it, and it had, it was made of linen or cotton. It was, it was very lightweight. And then over that, they wore a hymation, a, a cloak that was of a much thicker, heavier material. And a typical person of, of, of that day may have multiple chitons, multiple tunics that they wore kind of like undergarments, but they would typically have only one cloak, only one hymation. And, and, and one of the reasons they had one hymation was that not only was it a thicker, heavier material, but, but especially if you were poor and without shelter, it could double as your blanket in the evening to sleep under. And so the situation Jesus is describing is, is someone being taken to court being sued, likely because of some debt that is owed, you know, that, that you have to pay. But the thing is, you know, so, so literally this is a situation where someone is suing the shirt off your back, right? Taking everything they can take from you. But there was a limit to how much they could take. And the limit was they could take the shirt, but they couldn't take the cloak. Because remember, it was used also as a blanket. It was, it was protected by law. Exodus chapter 22, it says, if you lend money to any of my people among you who's needy, don't treat it like a business deal. And if you take their neighbor's cloak, their hymation as a pledge, you have to return it by sunset because that cloak is the only covering your neighbor has. What else could they sleep in? And so when they cry out to me, I will hear for I am compassionate. So what Jesus is describing is a situation where someone's literally trying to take the shirt off your back but they can't take your cloak. And he's saying, if they sue for your shirt, then give them your cloak as well. Give more than what they are demanding of you. He even goes on to give two examples at the end of this teaching where he says, if anyone begs of you, give to everyone who begs from you. Do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You don't set limits around giving. If someone's asking, if someone's demanding, you give. 
You give above and beyond what they demand, which is hard. Because as I was reading through kind of the textual commentaries on this, they pointed out that this giving isn't just about the surrender of, of, of time or the surrender of possessions, but literally because of the legal context that it's talking about, it's the surrender of our legal rights that we are giving over and above what we are legally entitled to. And I find myself just really struggling with that, particularly because, you know, Kim and I were talking about just between services, this, this is Black History Month. And it's a time when we remember that there are people in our country, whole communities, that for years had their civil rights violated. And is Jesus saying that they shouldn't stand up for their rights and their vows? In fact, those who did fight for their civil rights, for equal housing, equal opportunity, for equal education, equal health care, often the way that they fought for those rights was by practicing the ethic of nonviolence that Jesus taught. So what is Jesus saying here? And I think what he's saying is, he's, he's not saying, like when you surrender your cloak, he's not telling us to surrender our dignity. Instead, what I think Jesus is pointing to is a way that we can retain our dignity even when our civil rights are being violated. Because you can say to someone, you can take my shirt and you can take my cloak, but you cannot take my soul. You cannot fill me with hatred. As a free person, I give this to you over and above what the law requires me. As a free person, I choose to love you in the name of Christ, even though you wish me harm. Jesus says, if you want to love your enemy, then give to them over and above what they demand. And then his last teaching says, if anyone forces you to go one mile with them, go also the second mile. And this is the one that we, I think, quote the most in our culture, going the extra mile, except we we screw it up so badly. We misinterpret this in so many ways. Like I, there's a meme I came across from Princess Bride, if you know the movie, where, where uh, the guy says, you, you, know, you, you say this verse all the time, but I do not think it means what you think it means. Like it, we just misuse it because we, we typically interpret it like going the extra mile is about effort. Like, oh, you, you, you practice so hard, choir, to get ready for this concert. You went the extra mile. Or you, you did such a good job. You put in all those extra hours at the office. You went the extra mile. Or customer service, you really showed them how much, you know, attention and patience. You went the extra mile. But that's not at all what Jesus was talking about. To truly understand this passage, we have to try to imagine and place ourselves in the position of the of a first century Jewish person who experienced the subjugation, the occupation of Rome. We have to imagine what it would be like for them to see on every street a Roman soldier, a reminder of their military occupation, a reminder of the force that they were under. To see from time to time in public squares and public places members of their own people strung up and hung on crosses as a reminder that this is what Rome does to anyone who stands against us. To be forced to pay taxes at sword point, 
taxes that go to some king that's not our king to, to build roads and cities that we don't even get to enjoy, to be told that resistance is futile, that the only way that you can get ahead is just accept Roman rule, adapt to Roman culture, betray your own history, forget your own heritage, get with the plan. That's what Roman occupation meant. And one of the most hated laws of Roman occupation was the law of Agarion. The, the way it works is this, is that a Roman soldier at any moment in time could, could enlist a non-Roman citizen into their service, could force them for a period of time to provide for their needs. The, the poly, it comes from the Greek word agario. And the way it worked was this, was like if, if a Roman soldier needed food and you had food, they could compel you to give it to you. If they needed lodging and you, whether or not you had a spare room, guess what? You're housing a Roman soldier that night. And if they wanted you to carry something, didn't matter what else you had to do, where you were going, what your agenda or to-do list looked like, they could force you and compel you into their service to carry their burden for up to one mile. The, the, the Greek word here, as I said, was agario. You know, that's where Jesus says that someone forces you to go one mile. If someone agario you to go one mile. The other place where we see this word prominently, an example of agario, is when Jesus himself had to carry a cross and he was no longer able to do so because he was so badly beaten. They took a man named Simon of Cyrene and a Roman soldier agarioed him, forced him to carry Jesus's cross. This, Jesus says, is what it looks like to love your enemy, to bear their cross, to bear injustice for the redemption of your enemy. You see, the thing is, just like with the cloak and the, and the coat, you know, there, there, there was a limit to how much. The law set a limit for how much someone could take from you. And in the same way, the law set a limit for how far a Roman soldier could compel you to carry their pack. The limit was 1,000 paces, the equivalent of one Roman mile. And Jesus says, if someone forces you to carry their pack one mile, then you carry it another mile beyond. Because the first mile could be forced. The second mile can only be given. And in the same way, no one forced Jesus to lay down his life. No one took his life from him. He made of his own life a willing sacrifice for the redemption, for the salvation of those who are crucifying him. He willingly laid down his life. And he says, if you want to follow in my footsteps, take up your cross, follow me. Which means sometimes you have to make of your life a living sacrifice for the redemption and salvation of those who are hurting you. If you want to love your enemy, walk with them, serve them the extra mile. These are incredibly hard teachings, aren't they? That we aren't just supposed to pray for our enemy. We're supposed to forgive them. We're supposed to bear insult without retaliation. 
We're supposed to give more than they ask, serve beyond what we're required to do. The only way we can do any of this is if we remember that this is what Jesus did for us. He walked all the way to Calvary. He turned the other cheek. He allowed the Roman soldiers to beat him. He surrendered not just his clothes, his cloak and his tunic, but his very life for our salvation. We remember that this is what Jesus did for us. And we remember that when we try to walk in his footsteps, when we strive to love our enemies, we are not alone. Jesus walks with us every step of that second mile. And he set before us a promise. Just as he endured the cross for the glory that was set before him, he set before us a promise as well, that when you do this, when you turn the other cheek, when you give your cloak as well as your tunic, when you carry the pack the second extra mile, you show yourself, you become children of our heavenly father, displaying his glory and his grace for all to see. So I'm gonna repeat one more time our scripture today. I'm gonna read from Eugene Peterson's message translation. I invite you to think of whoever may be difficult to love in your life and to apply these words to that situation or in that relationship. Hear the word of the Lord. You're familiar with the old written law, love your friend and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. But I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. When someone gives you a hard time, respond with the supple moves of prayer, for then you are working out your true selves, your God-created selves. For this is what God does. He gives his best, the sun to warm and the rain to nourish to everyone, regardless the good and the bad, the nice and the nasty. If all you do is love the lovable, you expect a bonus, anybody can do that. If you simply say hello to those who greet you, do you expect a medal? Any run-of-the-mill sinner does that. In a word, what I'm saying is, grow up. Your kingdom subjects now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. Will you join me in our prayer of confession? Mighty and marvelous God, we come to confess our sins, to repent, and to seek your mercy. Forgive us when we condemn our enemies rather than extending a hand of Christ-like love. Forgive us for how quickly we judge one another. Remind us of your righteous justice. Forgive us when we wedge time with you into the tiny openings of our busyness. Pardon our tendency to prioritize worry over thanksgiving, prayer, and petition. Forgive us when we fail to believe that you love us, no matter what. We repent of our sinful thoughts and actions. Forgive us. Reconcile us to you and make us more like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.